Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. So I've got a question for you. How do you feel when you see somebody that's struggling with addiction or you know somebody that is? What thoughts come up? What assumptions do you make? Alicia Cook has, well, first of all, I, I fell in love with the cover of her latest book. Sorry, I haven't texted you back. So that was the start for me. And then I, I kind of stalked her on Instagram. I'm like, whoa, this young woman is a serious hero who's devoted her life to shedding light on how drug addiction impacts the mental health of whole families after the loss of her cousin. She released a collection of essays on the topic entitled Heroin is the Worst Thing to Ever Happen to Me. She's an essayist. She's a poet. She's a speaker. I consider her a hero. She's an activist. She's been on the front lines fighting the opioid epidemic. She's Emmy nominated for a PBS series called Here's the Story. I'll tell you why I like Alicia, though. She's all real talk. I like people that are real talk. And as we got into it more, we kind of unpacked what it's been like because she gets a lot of really dark email and holds space. So we talk about what we do at Sidewalk Talk, holding space to hear how she takes care of herself while also supporting people in the grips of their addiction. It's profound. It's profound. And I hope that you want to champion her. And she really fell in love with Sidewalk Talk. She said, I don't take a lot of requests for interviews. I'm very careful. And I just fell in love with what you guys are doing. So I hope for you that are listening, that are Sidewalk Talk listeners, uh, listen all the way through to hear Alicia's gratitudes for those listening on the sidewalk. All right. Alicia Cook. Alicia Cook, I am really excited to introduce the Sidewalk Talk family to your work because what I'd shared with you prior to us getting on live was that we, from listening on the sidewalk, face addiction every time we're out there. And the work that you're doing in the world really moved me. So tell, tell, tell everyone that's listening what you do and how this started for you. This, this sort of a- expertise, really, and advocacy and activism on behalf of people that have been struggling with substance abuse and addiction. Thank you so much, first, um, for having me and for inviting me on your, um, on your platform. Um, I think what you guys do is so necessary and unique. Um, so I'm, I'm honored to be a guest. My name is Alicia Cook, and I am a writer from New Jersey, and I advocate for families that have been impacted by drug addiction. 
So these are um, usually the unsung stories of drug addiction. Uh, usually you hear a lot about the person who struggled with the addiction. Um, but what you don't, at least when I first started, what, what I didn't really hear much about was the family and how they were impacted by having drug addiction, not only just literally in their home, but coursing through the bloodstream of someone that they couldn't possibly live without, that they just love so much. And um, watching that deterioration that drugs make and have on, on a human body, both mentally and, and visibly, physically. So many years ago, uh, my cousin Jessica and I uh, were the same age. And now I am... 10 years older than her because she died of a drug overdose when um, she was 19 and I was 20. And that's really what set me on this course. Um, I dedicate a lot of what I do to my cousin who could not be here today, but is the reason why I do what I do. Um, there are so, there are so many people that are in my shoes. Um, but for a long time, I felt like very isolated. I had lost not only my cousin, but a friend, a peer, a mirror image directly in my family. And really, I just started writing about what that was like for me and my family. And one of the first essays I ever had published was called um, Lessons I Learned from Someone Who Was Addicted to Drugs. Um, and that exploded on the internet. And I had people reaching out to me and saying, Oh my God, I thought I was the only one. Um, my brother, sister, cousin, friend, neighbor, parent, you name it, um, is addicted to drugs and I it's killing me. Um, so I I realized that that there wasn't a voice for these families, and I inevitably um seemingly became that voice. And here I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, first, I want to say, I, I, even though it's been a while, it feels like we should honor your cousin, and I want to say sorry for her loss. And you know what came up in me as you sort of mentioned her? Clearly, she was someone that mattered a lot to you, because now so many years of your life have been devoted to this cause. Can you tell me a little bit about your fondest memories of, of her, and can we bring her alive as a way to honor her a little bit? Yeah, I would love that, and I think that my aunt and uncle, her parents, would, would love that as well. Um and they, they usually listen to my stuff. Uh, so Jess Cook was um, a very smart, creative, um, pretty person. She was more outgoing than I am. She was braver than I was at the time. Um, I looked up to her in some aspects of how she always would just put herself out there, even at a young age. Um, I remember holidays with her very vividly still. Um, I remember moments that were just mine and hers that I still kind of keep to myself, um, right before she passed away, um, phone calls we had and things like that. But she was just a wonderful, quirky person with a great personality, a great laugh. And, um, it really sucks that <laughs> we lost that. And not only does it suck that we lost that as a family, but it, what a lot of people, I think for context, I wanted to say she died in 2006. So 2006 and the world we know today is 
starkly different. Uh, the way that some people um, used to view drug addiction versus now, the stigma still exists, but it was far worse in 2006 because no one knew anything about opioids or heroin. Um, so there was this dark stigma attached uh, surrounding her death where a lot of times I felt like I couldn't and couldn't or shouldn't grieve the loss. Yeah. yeah. And I like bottled all that up inside for God knows how long. Um, and it was odd, you know, a lot of my friends, even though they knew I lost someone very important to me, my friends did not attend the funeral. They didn't go to the wake. I'm sure my aunt and uncle were treated differently than if they were to lose their child another way at the time. So I write, you said, you know, you said it well, you said that it's 10, you know, it's more than 10 years now. And um, I still advocate in her honor, but also for the many other families that I've come in contact with, um, because this is my way to stay connected to her. I keep writing and I keep saying her name out loud and I keep all this going because it's my only connection to her now. Like, I don't remember the sound of her voice or, you know, maybe like if she had a distinct smell or, or anything like that, I, I don't remember any of that, but I remember small moments like reading magazines with her on my bed and laughing but um, it seems so far away and, and writing helps me stay connected. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing her to us because what has really given me a great deal of heartache is that we don't recognize that the stigma has us vilifying people that are struggling where they actually need support. And I get all the reasons why it's hard. You know, there's this organization in San Francisco called the Open Recovery Movement, which is, like you'd said, would never have existed in 2006. But when we've gone out and done listening events with them, it's the first thing that people always will sit down and share. It's like, God, the shame associated mm -hmm. with addiction and what is really a medical phenomena, condition, linked to many mental health pieces, but my deepest hope that by having your voice here, that that we are just another contributor to this conversation, that Jess was a person, she was this beautiful, bright girl, she was a friend, a daughter, and there are so many friends, daughters, sisters, brothers that are struggling, and 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 we've got to rehumanize them, so... I just, I could feel, I could almost feel her and get a picture of her when you were talking about her. So thanks for being willing to go a little vulnerable with us. I love, I love talking about her. I think that it's important um, to keep saying our, our lost loved ones' names and, and keeping their memory, not just, I mean, you keep a memory alive by talking about it. Yeah, for sure. So I want to learn something from you because I have a fantasy that on this long journey that you've been on, You've learned some things, right, about what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and what what we could do better. And I'm just, what have been the biggest lessons for you as you've opened your heart to so many of these families and, and people that reach out to you? Um, tell, tell us a little bit more, Alicia. So the first thing is, uh, it's scary. It's scary um, from the first word I wrote in 2000. 
I guess 13 by now to, to the last word I posted today on the internet. It's always scary to put something so vulnerable um, and personal out there into the world. But what I learned is it's necessary. So storytelling um, is a phrase a lot of people hear and they think like of fairy tales and folklore and things like that, or, you know, gossip even. But storytelling is a, is a powerful tool. Um, and I think it is the one thing that is going to be able to dismantle the stigma that is still surrounding um, families that face drug addiction. I think that that, I think all the science in the world, because there's more science now and there's more data now that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is a chronic brain disorder. That's still not enough for people um, to accept that addiction is not a moral failing. But I think the more stories that we, if we keep telling our stories and adding voice upon voice upon voice, and all the stories, though personal and, and unique in their own way, do tell a universal tale. There are hundreds of thousands of young people that lost their lives to drugs, just like my cousin Jessica. Um, and I think that dismantling the stigma, uh, the number one weapon we have to do this is our storytelling. So um, it's easier said than done because again, sharing your story is scary. Um, you know, a few times I almost gave up because I couldn't take the visceral reaction um, to a lot of what I was saying from internet trolls or anyone um, telling me that, you know, drug addiction is a choice. She deserved to die. Like just really nasty things. Uh -huh. where I was like, Why am I even putting myself out there like this? Um, but I kept doing it. I had a calling. I felt like it was necessary. Um, so the biggest lesson um, other than it being scary, but worth it is that the lives you're touching and helping far exceed the haters and the people that will never change their mind because they just don't want to. Um, and that could be said for a lot of situations in life. Um, the good does outweigh the bad. And I, I want to be on the right side of history with this. And I want to be remembered as a voice that never for a second doubted that drug addiction was a disease. Um, and it's often an, an ignored disease and people are just dying around us. And I want to be, I want to be remembered as a voice that tried to make a difference in, in all of that grief. Yeah. What are some of the stories that have touched you the most? Um, so in 2014 or 2015 years ago, at this point, I started, I had a goal and I wanted to write 50 essays on drug addiction uh, through my own personal lens. But then I also wanted to interview people. So I put a call for submissions out and I just hoped for 50. Um, each one of those stories is, is still with me all these years later. Um, I, I, the, I just truly believe that advocates are born the minute someone they love dies. And um the stuff that gets to me the most uh, is honestly the the messages I get from parents who lost their children. Um, I've had people from all over the world um, message me and, and their, their first connection, their first line to me is something like, hi, Alicia Cook, I read whatever article they read of mine. And then they just share their story and they share how 
they tried so hard to keep their kid alive and they just couldn't do it. Um, and that they want to make a difference now. So they jump into action almost immediately because honestly too, jumping into action is easier than processing your loss. <laughs> I don't know how healthy that is, but a lot of us do that. And um, they share their, they use, they have like opportunities in the obituaries or their eulogies to speak directly to and they've used their own children's like obituaries to say, you know, he or she was a wonderful person. Drugs took them over and they try to educate the readers. Um, and I mean, I could get more specific, but overall, the stories that stick with me are the ones where they face their most terrible loss and immediately wanted to prevent someone else from experiencing that same loss. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we had David Kessler on the podcast. He's, he's the grief guru. I mean, he's, he's one of the originators of the six stages, six stages of grief and has since had another stage because his son died, I believe from OD as well. Um, very in the last three or four years. And, and he, the, the last stage is meaning. We need to find meaning and so I think what I hear you saying is that these families, through their activism, aren't avoiding their grief, maybe in moments, but shoot, grief is such a bizarre, windy, up and down, all over the place, nonlinear path anyway, but it sounds like they are leveraging this loss to find a new meaning and purpose, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's why I did it. Um I, w I was always told I was a, a good writer and I was able to put into words what a lot of people maybe couldn't. Um, and I said, you know, if, if I have this gift to write for whatever reason, that's going to be my vessel to reach out to fam to families. And I never imagined, you know, in a million years, I never imagined that I would become one of the main voices, um, especially back then on this subject. But I'm I'm happy to be here because I Jess's death and you know the other people I've loved that have battled addiction one way or not, or the other like it couldn't have been for nothing like I couldn't have had my life turned upside down for nothing Jess's Jess being in a cemetery right now couldn't have been for nothing like it can't just be and I keep saying for nothing but um, I imagine that that's what a lot of families that it goes through their mind like. What, why am I here now? There has to be a bigger reason. And that's what I, I did. And even when I started writing about what I was experiencing and what I was going through personally, I didn't have a name for it. Like I didn't, I didn't know about mental illness back then or trauma or process or how to process things like that. Those were not buzzwords back then. I was, I didn't even realize that grief wasn't just a phase that grief stays with you always. Um, so I think that what you're saying is absolutely correct, that families need meaning, um, but also families need to know they're not alone. Um, and I think they do that for connection as well, especially when you lose someone from drug addiction. It's, it's not always, you know, neighbors bringing casseroles to your house or like the, it's a different type of um, condolences you receive because no one it's hard to navigate, admittedly. And no one really knows what to say. And then there's that dark cloud of addiction over everything. Yeah. So I want to talk about your latest book, 
Sorry, I haven't texted you back. Interesting title. <laughs> how, have, how have you, and I love the cover, by the way. Can I be honest with you? Sure. That's how I found you. I went, I, what is this? I love this cover. I got a, a, a mixtape. This reminds me of junior high school. It's a, I, mean, <laughs> I know it's silly, Alicia, but I, I, I did. I dug it. But um, how has your writing evolved and, and w- what's the difference in the topics you're taking up? I imagine there's more nuance and, and other subtleties that you're bringing in. Tell me what your intention is for Sorry I Haven't Texted You Back. Um, yeah, so Sorry I Haven't Texted You Back is named after a poem I wrote two two years ago, maybe, almost. Um, I posted it on the internet and it blew up. It, it went viral 10 times over. It continues to go viral um, during certain moments um, in our culture, in our world right now. Um And it's just like a really honest, brutal, it reads like a text message, but I have uh, parts of it crossed out. So all you really could definitely see are the pleasantries. So um, sorry, I haven't texted you back. We We all say that in some way, or sorry, I haven't called you back, or sorry, I didn't email you back. And we always come up with some excuse like, oh, life is so busy, or I'm sorry, I, you know, life is crazy right now. But we don't really say what's like bubbling under the surface. And um, that poem encompasses the truth, um, though it's slightly crossed out. So you could still read the truth, but it's the idea of like so many of us censor ourselves from our closest people, even. Um, and why are we not talking about our struggles? Um, that poem blowing up kind of showed me that or gave me permission in a way to write about mental health uh, more obviously. I was like, okay, the world is kind of ready for like, let's stop romanticizing everything. Let's talk about how a panic attack could make you pass out. And let's talk about how you break out in hives or, or what have you. Um, And the whole book uh, is a book of poetry and it's folk, it's broad theme. It's just how mental, our mental health, whether it, whether we're in a good state or a bad state, touches every facet of our lives. And it's impossible to compartmentalize, though so much of our world tells us that we need to compartmentalize. Um, so like I had one person, for example, read the book and say, I didn't expect there to be love poems in this book. And I'm like, well, yeah, the the man who loves me has to deal and I don't like using the word deal, but like he's with me for better or for worse. Um, my mental health affects him probably most of all after me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to kind of, I'm still trying to work on, I guess, how my work has evolved is I went from talking about specifically about how addiction affected my brain, even though I was never addicted to anything, to you know, many years later, like I deal with having anxiety and bouts of depression and I've had loss in my life and I am not processed. I haven't processed ever, you know, everything I've ever been through. Um, and the book was very well received. And I think it's because we're ready for something like this. Like, let's not put flat. We don't have to make everything like flowery and beautiful and like let's stop romanticizing depression. It could get really dark really fast and there's nothing pretty about it. Mm-hmm. And you're not alone. Me too. Same. I mean, I, right. absolutely. And I appreciate 
the there's something captivating though about the way that you're not preaching at people about mental health. Again, you're using story and art. It's so provocative, Alicia. And it's I, that's why I was drawn after, at first after being drawn by the cover of your book and then looking at what it was about, I'm like, oh, this is like what we do. Like we get under the covers of this stuff and hear the real, the straight poop, so to speak. But it it's, um, it, can I be frank? I get a little annoyed by the mental health stigma stuff. I'm like, I don't even want to make it about stick. This is like just, this is just us being human. Mental right. illness, mental, this is humanity. This isn't mental health, mental illness. This is just our humanity. And I often will say for people that are listening that are struggling with any mental illness, this is not to trivialize, but these are brave, sensitive souls that are having a healthy response to a sick, sick society. Right. That's so very well said. Um, that's absolutely true. And it's not an us versus them thing. Um, that's, that's where like that weird compartment, everyone is impacted, especially right now with the global pandemic. I know people that are having their first panic attack and thinking that they're having a heart attack and actually calling an ambulance. Um, so I hate to say that this pandemic might've leveled the, the understanding field of what mental health and illness really is. Um, but it definitely shined a great big spotlight on how fragile our minds are and how we have to work our minds, much like how we work every other muscle in our body at the gym. But, you know, it might be other, you know, coping ways, like be it therapy or listening to podcasts or finding a community that that accepts you and meets you where you're at. Um, and I'm always I'm never going to preach. Um even when people want to kind of debate me in comments, I don't, everyone is coming with their own story from their own angle, from their own experience. And all of our experiences are quite limited when taking in, you know, the big picture. Um, I'm always going to just write a story. And if you could see yourself in that story, then I've done my job. And if not, I, it's not that I haven't done my job. I'm just not, just not for you. Yeah. Well, your storytelling weaves us together. It says, me too, I'm not alone. I see myself there, like you said. And, and and maybe that means I'm worthy because somebody else has struggled too. And um, yeah, I just, yeah, I just love, love the way that you couch this. But I have this big question. <laughs> I was thinking earlier, we were talking about addiction. You write about some heavy stuff. Do you have fun too? <laughs> uh, yes, I I do. Um, a lot of times I don't. I write when it's when it's bad or when I have an idea that hits me and I and I or I finally find a way to say what I've wanted to say maybe for years. Um, but I never post in real time, so I'll never post a poem on a day I'm having a terrible day or a low day. I'm always posting a poem regardless of its topic when I'm in a good mind space um, because putting, again, putting something on social media to all, not just my followers, but to anyone who might stumble upon it, I need to be mentally prepared to like manage the response. So if you go to my last poem, for example, or poem or two that I wrote and you read the comments there, are, you know, I'm writing heavy stuff. So there are heavy comments. I have people in my comments telling me that, you know, they, they, tried to take their own life a month ago, but they're glad it didn't 
you know, didn't happen the way that they thought they wanted it to happen and that they're still here and that, um, you know, so-and-so in their life has just passed away and they felt alone, but now they feel seen. So, um, but I do at my heart, I, I, I know I'm, I know I am a little, I don't want to say morbid, but there is an aura about me that is always just a little lonely, (laughs) a, a little, just never completely happy. But I am a happy person and I am a grateful person. And um, I think that that's what matters. I know, you know, I'm, I'm a good woman. I'm a good friend, a good sister. Um, but there is that there's always this like underlying buzz of loneliness for some reason that's always hummed through me. Mm-hmm. But I've been able to have this platform and connect with people. And, and I mean, I feel like that's a gift. Well, personally, I don't think you're morbid. I think you're deep. And I actually like people that are morbidly deep. So now you know also why I reach out to you. <laughs> there's a safety. There's like a, okay, we can go on the high and we can go on the low and you can hang with me wherever I am. You know what I mean? Hey, I'll watch stupid stuff on YouTube and send. I send funny memes to my friend Pamela like all the time that are just so ridiculous. But then in the next breath, I'm posting or writing or responding to someone that just face like immeasurable loss. So yeah. Um, yeah. we're all multifaceted, but I, at my heart, I'm, I'm just, just grateful to be alive. And yeah. yeah, I love that you're giving voice to the word loneliness though, too, because it's been something when we first started doing what we were doing, we weren't expressly targeted on loneliness. It was very much like you. I, it was a reaction to gun violence in the United States and racism that had me sit on the sidewalk. Um, and I became sort of introduced to, whoa, we're like walking down the sidewalk and we don't even see each other. And when, when we've done some press, I've gotten calls. I remember I got this call once, Alicia, from this man. He says, gosh, I have like a great wife, kids, super happy. And I'm lonely all the time. Because have you ever experienced that? And I said, yeah, I, I think some of us are, are wired a certain way. And, and um I don't think that the way that we're living our lives is going to make it easier for us because it's not necessarily geared towards the kinds of slowing down and connecting to our bodies, to each other, to the earth that alleviates that. But there's like this whole new stigma. So you're going to have to write your next book on loneliness. <laughs> well, honestly, I, I never even realized what you said just like opened my eyes to something where I think like one of the main culprits in all of this and all of our discussions, all the heavy topics is like at our heart, there's just some kind of loneliness there. Um, and I do feel like in my, in this book and sorry, I haven't texted you back I, at one point, I'm paraphrasing my own work and probably messing it up. But at one point I write, you liken yourself to a failed experiment, um, given light eyes, but a dark mind given friends, but kept lonely. Um, and I think that that's, I was writing very specifically but um, the amount of people that have reposted that poem was that there is that universal feeling of like the way that you said, the way the society is set up. Like if we do even feel like this for a moment, I, I tend to think even now with all the information I have that I'm a little broken yep. and that's not true. I'm just human. And this is just, you know, everything ebbs. Um, yeah. Interesting that I'm so glad you brought that up because now I'm going to pay more attention to that. But I think that that's intrinsically throughout most of this book. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, totally. 
it's, I, I, I'm also having an aha because you're making this connection to, I mean, addiction is also, a, I mean, there's lots of research around addiction being also a connection, has, has a huge connection component to it as well. And gosh, I, I, I hope that as these poems and writings of yours reach more people, it also does give them a thread line of connection to then be able to sort of, it's like we have loneliness stigma now. I mean, we really do. There's, yeah. and, and I, I got to tell you a funny story. <laughs> I do this every once in a while because I'm goofy like you. Um, and rather than just posting something on social media, I'm like, what am I actually, why am I actually posting something? And I'm like, Tracy, you're lonely. So I posted something recently to my friends. I said, I'm lonely and I'd like some attention. That's all I posted. <laughs> and I had so many responses like, isn't that why we all post? <laughs> yeah, it's like we're almost, we have access. We have access to communicate to as many people as we want any time of the day now. We have more moods to do this than ever before. And we're the most disconnected from ourselves and lonely that we have ever been. So I find that that is so true. Like I'm just post, like I don't post nearly as much as I probably should because it's always like mentally tasking, you know, to do so. But when I do post, it's like, I want people to engage. I want them to talk back. Um, Even if I'm having like a, if I'm a little bored that day, I'll post more stories maybe because it engages with people. Um, and to your point with addiction being a connection issue, um, my, my one sober, um, warrior friend that I follow on social media, um, and she has a book out, her name is, uh, Laura. She posted a quote from someone. Um, I'm not, I honestly can't remember the, the actual quote person who she quoted, but, it was something like addiction is not a choice that anybody makes. It's not a more moral failure. What it actually is, it's a response to human suffering, which could be a response to loneliness or, or a response to trauma. 100% with you on that. Totally. Totally. Right. So I'm curious, let's be armchair like policymakers here. What the, he- what the heck do you think we should be doing about this? If you and I were sitting in a room and we were, they said, Alicia and Tracy, you got to fix this for us. I mean, what, what would you, just no pressure, but what do you think some of the things would be that you would like to see happen? Well, we can't really talk about any type of recovery from anything without talking about the fact that like healthcare and mental health resources are not globally accessible. Yep. It's a privilege that I'm able to use my copay and go see a therapist when I want or go to the doctor if I need to. Yep. Um, so ac- better access to just like fundamental resources that people need in order to at least jumpstart their recovery, I think is key. Um, something that it, that is great that came out of this technology world we're in now is that there are a lot of free resources. Yeah. That people know where to look. Yep. And, uh, and what's real and what's not real. But um, I, we can't talk about any kind of access to recovery without talking about the fact that access isn't granted to everyone and that it is a privilege to be able to access that. Yeah. Um, Spot on. Yeah. Speaking specifically about drug addiction, I've heard from countless parents, like more that if I told you how many, if I counted, it would break your heart. 
how many of their kids woke up one day and said, I'm ready to get better. And they called rehabs within like X amount of miles that might may or may not have been in their HMO, their healthcare insurance or whatever. And there were no beds available. Yep. And their kid died waiting for a bed in a rehab. We need more access when someone wants to recover and wants to begin that journey, whether it's rehab or, you know, any other thing that might be used that's similar across the globe, there needs to be a bed for them. They need help immediately. They don't have another day or they could change their mind or they could OD waiting. And I've heard a ton of, ton of stories from parents that like, especially in like in the U S in like the Midwest States that are, are maybe not as progressive in the addiction field. Yeah. Um, that like, there's just not enough beds. And then yeah. all of that, the, the large answer to all of that is of course, money, like funding is needed for all of this. And yeah, it's, it's a lot. What would you do? Well, I would start there actually. I mean, I look at the sort of the root causes and I think about so we know that some of the causes of um, addiction is tr- some of it is trauma. So we want to make sure that we have mental health care and intervention much much earlier for people that have experienced trauma or adverse childhood experiences like poverty. Right? Um, I'm I'm big into solving issues around equity. So poverty, housing. Um, Heading it off at the pass, giving people a safe, connected home life that could potentially prevent them from being addicted. Not always, because some of us, like you'd said, it's we're, we, you know, we kind of our brains are going to be wired for for some of this. But certainly, some of it we could head off at the pass. And then, and then I agree. I think that access—it's not just access; it's so hard too. Even if you. The amount of time that some of those those people that wrote to you took to even find a rehab facility, I get calls all the time from people saying, "I need to find a treatment center. What? Where do I go? Like, I don't even know where to begin. What's the process for this um, to begin to start?" And then finally, I, I do think that we have to solve the loneliness problem. We don't know how to connect anymore, and. I, I do fundamentally, you know, Johan Hari writes about this a lot um, in his book, Lost Connections, about loneliness and addiction being linked. And, I, you know, we know that people don't talk about this. They always assume it's seniors that are the loneliest. And in the UK, lots of the programs are geared towards senior loneliness, but it's actually young people, mm-hmm. you know, between the ages of 18 to 26 that are the loneliness, loneliest, suffering the most. And this is right the prime age of, of how old Jess was, you know. Yeah, I mean, Jess, Jess was dead before she turned 20. And even back then, I was like, oh, you know, I had moments where I felt like she was grown up. And now I, you know, I'm 34 years old. And I'm, I'm 18, 19. We were children. Yeah, yeah. And, she, you know, and for her to experience everything she went through leading, just leading up to her, you know, her final drug use and death, it, it breaks my heart to think about how alone she must have felt. Um And what you said about families not knowing even where to look, that's such a good point because a lot of times anyone's first experience with like addiction too close to home, they have no, you have to become an overnight expert on how to navigate that and and what it means to have someone with with a substance use disorder in your home and 
and it's hard to reconcile with like who that person was versus who they are now. And, and, you know, I remember talking to other people that I, that I've cared for um, at the height of their drug addiction, just looking at them and being like, do you even remember who you are? Mm. Like, is that person still there or, you know, so it's just like, I, I'm grateful that there are so many more resources readily available for families, you know, but a lot of times people Google and the first thing that pops up is my essay and I'm not a professional. I don't have any real resources. They're just like, they're reading it and they're feeling a connection to me, but what really should come up when they Google that stuff is like actual, actual immediate help. Yeah. I, I provide solace and understanding. I don't, I can't save their kids' lives. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure for a 34-year-old young woman to be having this many people seeking you out for solace. Yeah, so I mean, I what is your, what's your self-care routine? Like, how do you, how do you mitigate for that, Alicia? Well, it's, sometimes it's non-existent. Um, I've gotten better over the years because like I said, like I'm 34 now, but I've been doing this and speaking, you know, in town halls and on panels since I was like 23 years old. Um, I, I, um, it's a lot. So I only post when I really truly feel like I could hand, like I said earlier, like to manage the response. Um, I don't respond immediately anymore to emails. Like sometimes it's, you know, within 24 hours now, like when I'm in a good mental space to respond. Um, but I do always still respond because again, that connection is, I know how needed that connection is. And I wish I had that when I was going through it. Um, and then, you know, it, it's just hard. I've, I've spent a lot of my career hitting these milestones as an author that should be celebrated. <laughs> um, but my work is so directly tied to, to this, this type of pain that it's very hard for me to balance, like actually being happy for my success at, at a time where like, I wish drug addiction didn't exist. And if it didn't exist, I wouldn't exist in this career, but like, that's okay with me. Um, and then again, it's like, it's, it's hard to manage um, if people, I'm not saying they do, but if people do place me on a pedestal or not, that that's something that I'm always leery about. Um, and a lot of times it's not like I get a email or a, someone finds me on the street and they're like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm the happiest person I've ever been. And you're my biggest, and I'm your biggest fan. It's, it's always like, Hey, Alicia, my mom just died. I found your work. And now, you know, I love your work. Um, there's, there's never like a happy moment where someone's like, yeah. I, was, I was in the car smiling on a beautiful day and I found your book and I connected to it. It's always like someone in the thick of pain finding me. We might need to get like a, a little, like fla- Alicia Cook flash mob going to send, <laughs> to send you sweet nothings. Like nothing but positive vibes so that you can maintain your stamina. You need, you need like a bunch of, I just had like this, oh my God, I have this crazy imagination. I just had this imagination of like people all over the world mailing you paper hearts. That's what I just had. So you would just show up and there'd be all these paper hearts on your front door. So that's my, that's my wish for you, Alicia Cook. (laughs) I don't want it to be what I'm saying to be misconstrued as like me, you know, complaining or crying about no this role I'm in because again I, I feel like this was my purpose but it is you know what what does bring me joy is when when people upload photos of my book or you know and, the, and it's like a beautiful photo and they spent time setting it up and 
Like mm-hmm. that brings me joy. Um, and Look, then- you deserve joy. <laughs> I, I don't think that you deserving joy is you looking for accolades, you know? I mean, you're doing important important work and I'm going to just toot your horn and make you super uncomfortable about it (laughs) but you do important work that's deep and dark and what did you say you called it something earlier uh morbid (laughs) so you you deserve a lot of love for it you deserve a lot of love for it I hope that you get it and I also understand what it's like to sort of be a a figure not as as big as yours but I've done some media and people just have an idea about who I am I'm like you don't know who I am you know, yeah, what you see really, out there. <laughs> that, that's, um, I've gotten better at that. I, I've gotten better at not correcting people, even if like it's an easy correction, because I, as long as my work is getting done, like what actually matters, um, which is why I agreed, you know, not agreed, but I was like all in to this podcast because what you do is so amazing and pure and authentic and sincere. Um, I don't say yes to everything, especially not anymore. Um, but I had to be on, on your show because I just love everything that you do. And it, I feel like it's organic and real. Oh, thanks for saying that. Perfect segue because we're, we're near the end of our time now. And we have this sweet, sweet way that we, a ritual, if you will, to, to say goodbye to each other is, is, is I get out of the way and let you speak to all these thousands of listeners of ours who listen on the sidewalk and now over the last year have been listening online to strangers. What words of wisdom or wish would you want to speak directly to them? Well, I just hope that even, even if you feel like things can't get any worse that things won't get better in your life, that you just hold on um, because everything is temporary. Every feeling, every emotion, sometimes you just have to wait for the sun to rise and a better day to begin. Um, But in order to do that, you really just need to hang on um, through what very well might be like the darkest days of your life. And since I am a writer and I have my book here, I think the best way for me to send this off is is maybe to read a poem if that's okay love it so i'm going to read track 91 from sorry i haven't texted you back the stillness inside of me is gone leaked through my ears and tear ducts that's what happens when the weight of the world leaves your shoulders and enters your head i no longer can sit silent with myself i pace Race, twitch, itch. Did I leave the stove on? Did I blow out that candle? Did I lock the door? Better go back and check. There will always be things to fix, to obsess over. The worries are infinite. The days are finite. This life, this world as you know it right now, filled with the people you love, will be gone one day. So, when you feel the sadness lingering... Remember, not every guiding light will glow bright. There is a lesson found in all your days, even hidden in the worst ones of your life. So carry on. Amazing. Chills. Chills. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being here. And for everyone listening, there are so many links to Alicia's books and her social media feeds where you can follow her. 
And it's just been a, a real honor. Thanks, Alicia. Thank you so much for talking to me today and giving me access to your wonderful community. Yeah. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.